We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. What we are very proud of now is that we penetrate the cabinets. Seriously, I'm, I'm making a serious point. I don't know what half of them are protesting against. We've still got Fauci walking around free. The man should be in irons in the darkest pit. As much as he touts that he cares about it, he doesn't. This is our revolution. It's not theirs. Don't let them take it from you. Don't let them convince you that it's their revolution when in fact it's not. It's ours. And we will have it. It is Monday, the first day of August, the year of our Lord, 2022. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside Bruce Adams. Bruce, how are you today? Healthy and alive. Yourself? Not bad. Not bad. The temperature is increasing again, though. But it, I I think I know why. It's, it's climate change. But we're going to get into that today. We're going to get into the rising temperatures because it's a serious thing. And it's something that we're ignoring. So we're going to talk about the rising temperatures today. But before we do that, before we do that, we're going to get into something a little bit more um, well, it's important to recognize that. Um, well, actually, it, I can't. I can't even say we can recognize it because it's not actually acknowledged. Because we're not identifying what the problem is, so we don't know if it's actually that way or not. But yet we're being told that it's not. But we all know that it is. So it's just like everything we've seen over the last two to three years. But now that we're headed into an economical problem because of everything that they've fouled up over the last few years to actually try and right the ship and and get us onto the right path. But instead, their plan's been to wreck everything and destroy everything and bring in this great reset. But are we actually in a recession? Is the U.S. going into a recession? I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? So yes and no. Okay. So are we in a recession yet? Technically speaking, the, the, the technical definition is uh, two consecutive months of uh, GDP drop, right? Negative quarters rates on GDP. Oh, uh, yeah, excuse me, quarters. We've done that. Um, the catch is first quarter was a little bit odd. There was some oddities there. Uh, and the thing is, is that quarter was the, 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 the drop is so low. Technically, both quarters are. It's so low that it could... Uh, at the end of the year, it could end up being we're in a positive because those numbers are low enough. That said, this quarter, we're on track to meet the recession uh, requirements, if you will. Uh, and there, there's also other factors in that that go into this as well. Uh, honestly, this is this is an area I haven't done a ton of research on. I've listened to experts on. Uh, it, it's kind of if you ask like a, a CEO or something, they're going to say yes, because they, they shareholders, they have to uh, be aware of and keep happy. Whereas uh, the economists, they don't necessarily want it. You don't really want to get people in the mindset that a recession is happening because then the economy will tank even more. Uh, uh, but I think we are. I, personally, I think we're in the midst of one personally. Yes, yes. And the, I think to kind of back that up, and again, I'm, I'm not, you know, a, I'm not an economist or, or an investor or anything like that. Uh, but I do know people that are in the business and people that have uh, got university degrees in economics and international business and, and international business and economics. So I, I mean, just by conferring with these people on a regular basis, I know a little bit of something. Uh, and I can also see with my own eyes what's going on within the economy at the local level. And I can also pay attention and, and understand and comprehend what all these numbers are. But 
But maybe maybe I'm misunderstanding because all of the experts, I'm doing the air quotes, experts, they're all telling us, no, no, we're not in a recession, which means we're in one. That's really all you need to know. By the way, Bruce, that's a nice shirt. I like that. That's a really nice shirt you got on there. Oh, thank you. Uh, actually, when I this was a birth, birthday gift, and I sat there and looked through all the signatures to make sure all the signatures were, in fact, there on the shirt, uh, the founders. So they, they are all there. As a matter of fact, it took me like an hour and a half to look through them, but <laughs> did it. That is a nice shirt. But thank you. I, I do want to throw in another thing with the economy. Uh, typically, when we start going into a recession like that, that means uh, the economy is cooling, as they say. I want to take and pay attention to what Biden's doing in this, not just Biden, but also uh, the House and Senate. Look at what they're doing. They're not trying to curb spending. Government spending is one of the ways that you get into a recession. They've just been heaping on more spending, more spending. They're throwing more money into the economy. And they're they're talking about doing even more spending and more uh, money into the economy. This isn't how you overcome recession. You don't spend your way out of a recession. You have to curb the spending. You have to you have to get the regulatory stuff out of the way for the economy to boom so it can pick up speed again. And so that the American people have less we need less expenditures that we have to pay for, you know, like taxes or gas hikes because of uh, government policies, you know, those kind of things. If they would get all those things out of the way, then, yeah, we could get out of the recession quicker or, you know, or, or for that matter, it, it, it would be, you know, mild. Biden's economic advisor on the last two quarters of GDP growth. Many of you have uh, reported on, um, as Secretary Yellen said on Sunday, uh, two negative quarters of GDP growth is not uh, the technical definition of recession. It's not the definition that economists have traditionally uh, relied on. Uh, there is an organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, and what they do is they look at a broad range of data and deciding uh, whether or not a recession has occurred. That is the problem. Okay, so uh, because we don't identify that there is a recession going on because the Treasury Secretary said so, and the Fed Chairman says so, which we got a clip of him here here in just a second. Uh, so because they don't identify with this being a recession, then it's not one. Instead, we're going to go to a group of paid hacks that get government funding. And they're going to tell you whether or not we're in a recession. So that's how this works. We're going to go to Wikipedia. By the way, they did this last night. They're going to go to Wikipedia. They're going to change. I'm not saying Wikipedia is a source, but a lot of people go there thinking it's a source. And it changes a lot of people's minds. Nine. What is it? Is it 900 people? Not 950 something people run Wikipedia. Yeah, you, you could say just a thousand under a thousand. Okay. All right. Under a thousand people. Close. Yeah, under a thousand people. And it's it's considered to be a source worldwide by the average person. They go there reading that stuff, thinking that that's the truth and that's the way that things are. Last night, they went and changed what Wikipedia says a recession is, and they locked the page. They locked it. So it can't be changed any longer. So we don't identify what a recession is any longer. All right, fine. So let's go to Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. What does he say? Uh, thanks, Chair Powell. Uh, Neil Irwin from Axios. Um, to build a little bit on, on what Steve was asking, um, do you believe the United States is currently in a recession? Uh, will the GDP reading tomorrow affect that judgment one way or the other? And has your assessment of the risk of recession changed any in recent weeks? So I, don't, I do not think the U.S. is currently in a recession. Um, 
And the reason is there are just too many areas of the economy that are that are performing. Uh, what you know, areas would those too would those well? Be? And, and of course, I would uh-huh. point to the labor market in, in particular. Uh, right. As I mentioned, it's true that growth is slowing, and for reasons that we understand, really the growth was extraordinarily high last year, five and a half percent. Oh, what? We would have expected growth to slow. There's also more slowing going on well, now. Why? Why if you was look it at the labor so fast? That, that's why, why a, was the growing happening? That that's a flat out lie. Yeah, it's a it's a lie. So here's the thing. He's he's right. There there was. growth last year, and there's been continued growth. It slowed some. But you have to remember, COVID, we lost a lot of jobs. There was a lot that was lost. We haven't recovered COVID jobs yet. Uh, It was something like, what was it, two and a half million or something like that, jobs that were lost in that area? I think it was higher than that. We haven't, yeah, we, we, we haven't recovered that yet. So, uh, these, these arguments that, well, the job market's doing so well, uh, is it? We, we, we haven't, reached uh, pre-pandemic levels yet. So I, I'm, I'm not sure where they're getting that other than they're gaslighting us. That's all this is, is nothing but gaslighting. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Meet the Depressed, excuse me, Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. Let me just start with this. Many businesses seem to be preparing for a recession. Should all Americans at home be preparing for what's uh, for, for a recession that many people think now is likely? Well, um, look, it, the economy is slowing down. It Last year, it grew very rapidly at about 5.5%, and that succeeded in putting people back to work who had lost their jobs during the pandemic. The labor market is now extremely strong. Um, even just during the last three months, uh, net job gains averaged 375000 This is not an economy that's in recession, but we're in a period of transition in which growth is slowing, and that's necessary and appropriate. Okay, so we're not in a recession. The labor market is 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 rock solid. You heard her. So this is not a this is not an economy that's in a recession. So they're going with they got their talking points. Her and Powell got their talking points lined up. So everybody's working together, right? They got everybody on the same page. And they're throwing you off saying, no, well, see, no, 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 we're not in a recession. No, 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 we're not. We're not in a recession. You, you've got more money than you've ever had. You've got more money than you've ever had. The The price at the pump is down to, well, I think, what is it? The, the national average now is $4.30 a gallon. Because that's um, great. It was $1.80 well, when we took so office. Well, it was $1.80 was the national average. Uh, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, we're, we're. Ga- higher gas prices is good, right? That means our economy is doing great, right? Well, that means you're you're creating more jobs when you have that high price. I mean, that, that that's what that means, right? And of course, you've got more money to spend on on things, right? Consumers they have more money than they've ever had. What was it Kamala Harris just said that a few weeks ago? Oh, consumers they've got they've got an additional five thousand dollars in their accounts. The American savings account is larger than it's ever been. Uh, Bruce, is your savings account, I'm not going to ask what your personal finances are, but is your savings account larger than it's ever been before? No. No? No. No. You're in an oil town, mm-hmm. and you're still seeing over $4 a gallon gasoline, aren't you? Uh, I'd have to double check what the prices are. They've come down. I want to say we we're just under $4. Well, I would expect that at least in an oil town, if nothing else. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're three and a half. 
$3.50. Okay, that's all right. So that's that's down. But you're in an oil town. I expect it to be a little bit lower. But the national yeah. average is still $4.50 or $4.30 or whatever it is. I, I don't know. It's over $4. That's all that matters. So we're not in a recession. You've got more money than you've ever had. But yet AT&T took a 22% hit the other day in trading. 22%. That's one of the largest telecom companies in America. A 22% hit. That's a pretty big deal. What does that mean? The company believes that it's because subscribers aren't paying their phone bills. Why would that be? Well, a phone is considered to be a non-necessary household expense, I believe. A a cell phone, anyway. A mobile phone is considered to be a non-necessary household expense. It used to be that a regular telephone, a home phone, was a necessary expense. And a lot of times, I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, some people didn't have a phone. Some people didn't. They didn't have a home phone because they were expensive. They were expensive. And if they needed to make a call, they'd have to go to a neighbor and, and make a call there. But this, this, the days we live in now where everyone has a mobile phone, everyone's got one. And the average cost, uh, it can vary, at least in the U.S., it can vary, I think, between $40 a month for a single line all the way up to like the family plans that are 100 and whatever per month. It, it's ridiculous. It's price gouging anyway. Those phone prices... To get technical about it, those phone prices, they could knock those things down to $10 a line. And that's just to pay the service cost to them. They could knock those down to $10 a line and they would still be making money, but they don't. Instead, they charge you an exorbitant amount of money because they can, because they know you'll pay for it. Same thing with the cable TV and the internet and the satellite TV and all that stuff. That costs almost nothing to bring to you. Same thing with the voice and the uh, uh, the texting. You know, the voice and the texting actually use the same frequency, but yet the phone companies, the telecom companies have been charging you for text messaging all of these years. Why is that? Now, the data, that's something different. But we're in an age now where you don't need the voice lines any longer. You don't need the texting lines, which is the same line. They don't need those frequencies any longer. Those can go away. With all of the calls now that are able to be routed through data, it costs pennies, pennies, for these companies. As a matter of fact, the only expense that they have is the expense to actually keep the line operating, keeping electricity to it. That's the only expense they have. They could offer that service for next to nothing to you, but they don't. Why is that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I do actually have a little bit of insight to that. Um, some of the com- there are there are a few companies out there that that offer really cheap phone service and it has um pretty pretty close to the same coverage as your major companies they would go even cheaper if they could but they can't because of government regulation so again government's bad yes yes as a matter of fact they are uh, i have a uh, i have a us phone plan uh, through a company it's a it's a data uh, voice plan that can call regular phone lines uh, through a company called volta it's a uh, volta wireless go check them out if you're a uh, uh, if you're an american customer uh, or if you're a customer that's abroad and you're looking for an american service uh, they offer it uh, and it works with any phone plan that you have, whether you're domestic or you're overseas. Uh, I took one of their plans and I can make calls all over the world for a flat rate. Uh, and the people in the U.S. and Canada can call me free of charge. And it's a great service. It's a great service. And they say if it wasn't for the fact of what you just mentioned, Bruce, if it wasn't for the government charging of things, if it wasn't for that, 
then they could offer that service for almost nothing. They could just charge you like a, ser- a small service fee and that would be it. But unfortunately, you know, they have to they have to stay in business and they have to pay the, the government regulators too. So anyway, all right, I don't want to get into all that stuff. I mean, that was a side issue that we were starting to go down anyway, but I don't want to get into that because we're in a recession, right? Don't let anybody confuse you. We're actually in a recession. So Joe Biden gave a speech, God help us, since he's over COVID. Did he really have COVID though? Or was no, it just a reaction no. to it, like no, 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 no. Adderall I, I think, or something? No, I think, yeah, Adderall. I think that it was the um, the cancer comment and they needed to pull him because you notice that's disappeared. All of that's been memory hold. No one's mentioned that yeah. and, and everything's gone. So yeah, uh, I think they just needed to pull him, get him out of sight for a little bit, let the public forget and move on to the next thing. And now we're back to the next crisis. So we're headed into this. What was it? He gave a, um, uh, he gave a press conference the other day standing in front of a you know, hand-picked group of people that are going to ask all the wrong questions. And this is what he had to say about his advisors. Now, he, of course, he, you know, he's the president. He knows, right? He, he's the president. He knows. But yet he's got all these other people that are going to tell him whether or not the U.S. is in a recession or not. Both Chairman Powell and many of the uh, um, uh, significant uh, banking personnel and economists say we're not in a recession. Okay, so they say that we're not in one, right? So they're all on the same page. They say we're not in one. You know, the, uh, 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 the, uh, th- those, those people, yeah, they say that we're not in a recession. And then he goes on to say. And just last week, as I said, SK Corporation of the Republic of Korea announced $22 billion in new investment in semiconductor batteries, chargers, and medical devices, creating another 16,000 jobs here in America. And this is powering the strongest rebound in American manufacturing in over three decades, creating 613,000, 613,000 manufacturing jobs. Passing the CHIPS bill is going to put another $72 billion for incentives and tax credits to expand semiconductor production. And the Inflation Reduction Act will add another $370 billion in clean energy tax credits in reconciliation, including incentives to accelerate domestic production of solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and critical materials processing. That's great. That doesn't sound like a recession. Thank you very much. See, that doesn't sound like a recession because everything that he just said, that's all build back better, right? You're going to build it back better with all that. This semiconductor thing, this chips bill that they just passed, there was something that was left in there, something about a loophole that gives China the ability to just roll over top of us, doesn't it? Well, so there was a there was a stipulation, a guardrail that was put in there. By Republicans. The guardrail basically restricted anyone outside the U.S. from getting this money, any, any of the subsidies. Chucky e. Schumer decided, uh, yeah, that, 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 that doesn't need to be there. Uh, we're just going to remove it. So now China, as an example, let's just say they have one business here or a branch or they're looking to build something here, quote unquote looking. Uh, they can get subsidies and continue manufacturing in China. So, yeah, but you're going to uh, be, it, 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 be manufacturing the, the solar panels and the lithium batteries, which you're going to get from China and the solar panels you're going to get from China, the, the semiconductors and the chips, which you're going to get from China, or at least the materials to manufacture them. Yeah. And something else that they failed to mention in this bill, uh, they're subsidizing it. Companies at the same time, those very same companies that they're subsidizing, they're taxing. I'm not sure how that 
works. It doesn't. It doesn't. This is this is supposedly the group that's going to reinvent the world. This is this is stakeholder capitalism at its finest is this right here. This is the government and, and people that are behind the governments, such as Klaus Schwab and these these corporation types. This is them picking winners and losers. They can't pick winners and losers when they've never actually built anything. Name one person, please, somebody, name one person inside this current administration that's ever built a product or a service that somebody wants. Can somebody pick one person in this administration that's done that? I haven't seen one. Actually, how many uh, on on that line? Let's expand the horizon a bit and say... uh how many billionaires do you know that are actually producing a product that's beneficial? Some would argue Bezos. Some would argue that. But it's not really a product. That's more of a service he's providing. That's a service, yeah. Yeah. They're not, Same thing with Amazon with doesn't Musk. provide an actual product. No, they've got their Amazon basics, you know, their their stuff that they like their own branding. But that's just a knockoff of something else. That's like, you know, they're, they're manufacturing all that stuff in China anyway. And they're just they're putting their own label on it. Musk, maybe you can argue that, you know, he's offering an actual product and a service. He, he's offering both. So maybe you can argue that. I, I don't know. You've got uh, here's a billionaire that nobody really pays attention to. Pavel Durov, the telegram guy. He's a billionaire. No one really talks about him. He's offering a product and a service. You know, Telegram is is like that's been one of the fastest growing plat- social media platforms in the last three years since COVID because they're not technically censoring anybody. Yeah, they're, they're kind of doing it I, and I don't like it. But nonetheless, that's a product and a service that people are, are, are buying. Well, they're not really buying. They're offering it for free, but they have subscription based services now. But there are things. I would still, but I would still say these, that's a service, though, not a product. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. None, none of these people, n- none of these people, as you say, though, uh, it, largely, at least none that are involved within the decision-making process of the economical inner workings, none of them are billionaires that are providing either one of those things. None of them. And they're not being brought in as advisors either. No. Out of all of those billionaires, I think I think uh, Musk is the only one that's really bringing forth a product. But that said, Going back to this, all of this uh, economic stuff they're trying to do, whatever the hell this all this is, uh, all the people that we listed there are guilty of helping the government in the sense that they lobby and kind of create this um, uh, self-feeding system. They the the, the these companies. Um, I don't know how bad Tesla is because um, I haven't really seen this except for like subsidies. NASA. A lot of government subsidies. Well, that, yeah, subsidies, but he applies yes, for them. But he applies for them because he, the the government's offering money. I actually heard Musk talk about this once. The government has these programs in place. They've already got that money earmarked. It's already there. You have to apply for it. It's it's grant money for this green agenda garbage that they're doing. You know, this electric stuff. That's why he went electric. It's paperwork. If you apply for a grant from the gut, well, any government really. If you apply for that. For this, for any of this green stuff, you will get it. You'll get the products. You'll get the cash, whatever it is. But it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of paperwork, and there's a lot of regulation. For example, the solar panels that that I had put on that was done through a government program. It was a program that they already had set aside. Anybody that was putting in uh, putting in solar panels, you would sign the agreement. They would give you the panels, and they would hand you uh, four grand in cash. But you had to do it in a certain way. All the paperwork had to be done correctly. You had to have licensed people come in, install them. They had to be done in a certain way, and it had to be hooked into your home system 
correctly. So there, there is a process to do this stuff, uh, and it actually exists. I, I've actually gone through it before. But uh, the, these things actually do happen. Uh, but it is a pain. I, I don't like the fact that we're using government programs. I, I don't like that at all. Uh, but quite frankly, the solar panels, and I'll, I'll say this about them. I, I know I, I bitch about solar panels all the time, but you know what? They really do. On an individual basis, they do save some money. They do. But it's not a whole lot. It, it's not It's not too much. But yeah, it, it does It does help with some savings on uh, a lot of the energy costs. Uh, but it's it's nowhere near you know what what you end up having to pay in the in the in service cost anyway but it does help some so uh a lot of the subsidies that he's gotten though he's paid back uh i know because i've listened to the interviews and whatnot and he as you said there's a lot of paperwork uh for uh, a lot of that stuff he's a lot of late nights and if you have one typo in there they can actually they can uh disapprove your uh uh your application but all that to say uh, when you look at these uh, other companies, it's a revolving door. As an example, we've talked about it with Facebook. Um, they hire a lot of CIA to uh, work for them for their misinformation, disinformation. Um, and Facebook and Twitter both are kind of going to the governments, basically saying, regulate us. Give us the, the government protections to censor people. Uh, this would effectively give them uh, immunity. You wouldn't be able to sue them any longer. That's why they want that. Uh, I'm I'm tired of this uh, oligarchical system that we we have, and, I, and honestly, it's going to take a lot of work. Yep, it is. It is that that is true. And I I told you, and I've I've said here before. I I said it's going to take if we if we can come out clean on the other side of this thing, which <laughs> it's proving to be a bit of a problem at the moment. But if we can somehow get through this and we can reestablish some type of system and we can regain control from these out of control people on the other side, it's going to take us at least, at least 20 years. That's my best guess. And that's being conservative. That's being very generous. At least 20 years to establish some type of a baseline that we can restart our institutions and our, our, and our systems based on local politics. That's my best guess at the moment. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a society builder or something, but um, I know enough history to understand. But if we don't, this is worst case scenario I'm about to uh, I'm about to mention. If we don't, and I'm just comparing what happened to the Roman Empire, the collapse of the Roman Empire. If we don't get this right, if we don't somehow or another maintain control and we go down this god awful road of total collapse, total societal collapse, then we're looking at hundreds of years of chaos and disorder, hundreds of years of that. And society may likely never recover, at least in the uh, it, within our lifetimes and within within the next two to three centuries. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, and it's hard to say that whatever we would ever come out of that because of the you know the tech systems and all that stuff. I, I highly doubt it. But uh, that's another conversation for another day. With the economy, you've got an economy in transition, right? Isn't that what all of them are saying? You got an economy in transition. Transition to what? Yeah. Transition to what we discussed. At the end of last week, the end of your car ownership, right? Private car ownership. No, you're not going to have that. You're going to eat bugs. Yeah, we played the clip of Robert Downey Jr. on Colbert last week. By the way, he owns all those companies you'd be buying all that stuff from. Does that mean he's going to make money? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's going to make money off of changing what you eat and what you buy. That's all going to go through his company. You see, he's a stakeholder in the new system. He's a stakeholder. You don't have shareholders. You have stakeholders. These are small companies that they own, that they have a market monopoly on. 
They shut down all their competition through regulation put in place by the governments. So there are no other competitors to that. Oh, um, sorry, you don't have any other option for, uh, for, for a protein supplement. You have to go to Robert Downey Jr. to get that. You have to go to his company to get that because you see all these farms over here. Well, see, they, they all emit that, that CO2 stuff. They all emit that methane stuff. And those, those ni- they use those nitrogen things. You can't have that. But, but I, don't, I don't want that stuff from Robert Downey Jr. Well, you don't have a choice. You got to take that. So you see, we're in a transition and it's all being done because of climate change, right? It's climate change. It's your fault, which by the way, they don't even bother to mention that dying vegetation is responsible for more CO2 emissions than all other CO2 creating activity in the world combined. That includes volcanic eruptions and all human activity. Dying vegetation, yet we have to transition to a plant-based diet economy. They want to make everybody vegans is what they want to do. They want to hold a gun to everybody's head. Not even vegan, because vegans don't even, they're not for eating insects. Vegans don't even do honey. So that's a good point. Okay. That, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. That, that is a fair point. Yeah. I, so yeah, the vegans, they won't eat insects. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, so, yeah, that's a good question. I wonder, what do the vegans think of that whole insect thing? Are they for it's con- doing okay. that? To be fair, it is controversial for the vegans. You, you have some on one side that are saying bugs are... Uh, you can't eat them. And then some on the other that like same with honey there, there's, it's kind of a mix because they're not sure insects are not, not sentient, but, uh, feel pain, I think is the argument. That's a fair point. They say that about fish though, as well. Well, fish, I actually believe it. I, I actually think fish have feeling and yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. they can feel pain. So yeah, yeah. I, I've always but thought it's still, it's still questioned. So, well, everything has to change because of climate change. We've been told in the 1970s, oh, it's global freezing. Oh, we're headed into a new ice age. It doesn't matter if you leave Buffalo, New York, because all of the United States is going to be a frozen wasteland, right? So where are you going to go? Well, none of that happened. Instead, my generation came along and we were indoctrinated on the kids shows from back in the 90s, the late 80s and early 90s. Oh, we're going to have global warming. Your beaches are going to shrink. The sea level is going to rise. Cities and and whole nations are going to be swept away. And this is what they were saying in the late 80s and and early 90s, the United Nations. I pulled an article. uh, What was it, Bruce? I pulled an article last week that said where the United Nations actually said most nations on Earth will be swept away by rising sea levels by the year 2000. We're 20 years past that, over 20 years past that. Those coastlines are still the same. I've been back to the places where I used to go as a kid in the 80s and in the 90s. They're still there. Nothing's changed. But yet we're told that it's changed. We're told everything is is collapsing in the third world because of climate change. No, everything's collapsing in the third world because you people have fouled up everything here because we've made the third world dependent on the first world. But yet this is all because of you. This is your fault. No, it's not their fault. See, they can do no wrong. They're the new priest class. Last year, really, it's been a year. Last year, Bruce, we were talking about climate change. This is when they first started to to spin up the whole climate change thing and and really start to push it because we were in the in the height of COVID, but they needed to reprieve. They needed to blow off some steam. They needed to hit the check valve. They needed to take some pressure off. And so they started to switch to climate change. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, he was coming out, giving interviews to American outlets, talking about climate change. They were pushing it at COP26. You remember that in Scotland? Everything was about climate change. But you at the time had mentioned, yeah, uh, if you look at where they got a lot of this data on rising temperatures, it doesn't quite work. If you look at what they reference in all of these papers and all of these studies, well, look at where they put the temperature sensors. 
That has a lot to do with it. Actually, that has everything to do with it. There's a new study out that not only confirms everything that you talked about last year that you were able to show receipts on then, it also makes it look, I don't know, a thousand times worse than what we actually thought that it was. Do you know they were they were saying in England last week, we played the clip here on Sky News, the RAF airbase runway was melting. They actually said that. But you notice they never showed it. They were recording and showing the maps across mainland Europe with this deep red or purple or whatever it was. And it was like 90 degrees. And if you go back a few years ago, the temperatures were even higher, but it was just a normal day. It was fine. So where are they getting this data? How, more importantly, how are they measuring this data? Well, as I said, there's a new report out. This goes all the way back to the early 2000s. And it's entitled Corrupted Climate Stations. The official U.S. temperature record remains fatally flawed. And I'm just going to give you the summary, right? And we're going to get down into the uh, we're going to get down into the good stuff. This report examines the accuracy and reliability of U.S. temperature stations from which official temperature records are reported. Now, remember, it's your fault. It's your fault that it's climate change, right? It's your fault. You have to pay the price for that. And you're not going to own a car. You're not going to eat meat or anything like that. You're not going to farm. None of that. You're not going to have heating and electricity, none of that stuff. You got to have wind and solar and and whatever, right? You got to have all that stuff. Following up on a March 2009 study, the original report found that the ground-based system for measuring surface temperatures in the United States was biased by asphalt, machinery, and other heat-producing, heat-trapping, or heat-accentuating objects located near many official temperature stations and their sensory equipment. The new study re-examines these temperature stations and equipment to determine rather there remains flaws in the official U.S. surface temperature record, which is what they use to base all this climate hysteria on. This report finds approximately 96% of U.S. temperature stations fail to meet what National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, considers to be acceptable uncorrupted placement. These findings strongly undermine the legitimacy and the magnitude of these official consensus on the long-term climate warning trends. Boy, that sounds very important, doesn't it? That sounds extremely important. You would think that all the data that's gathered by these things, you base all your academic studies and all your academic papers and, and all your grants and all your funding and everything, all of that comes from the data that you collect based on these sensors that are placed there by the government. But where are they placed? The U.S. surface temperature record is determined from data gathered by the Cooperative Observer Network, administered by NOAA from the National Weather Service Division. Data are then compiled and presented to the public for climate change tracking by the National Center for Environment Information, formerly known as the National Climactic Data Center. NOAA defines the uh, cooperative observer network as the following. It's important to understand this. I know this sounds kind of boring, but it's important to understand this because all of their climate hysteria and all their climate change stuff is based on this. The National Weather Service Cooperative Observer Program is a network of daily weather observations taken by more than 8,500 volunteers. These data, which include observations from the late 1800s, are vital to understanding the U.S. climate and also provide near real-time information that supports forecasts, warnings, and alerts, and other public service programs. Observations are taken from around the U.S. 
and its territories at national parks, seashores, mountaintops, farms, and many urban and suburban areas. Pretty much every geographical area you can think of to get a good summarization of everything that's going on in all parts, right? The co-op data usually consists of daily maximum and minimum temperatures, snowfall, snow depth, and 24-hour precipitation totals. Observations may include additional hydrological and meteorological data such as evaporation or soil temperatures. The quality of temperature data gathered via the co-op network of stations is what is examined in this report. In 2009, the station inspection concentrated on a subset of the co-op network called the United States Historical Climatology Network. At the time, it was comprised of 1,225 stations out of the 8,700 stations making up the larger network. And they go down through here as to what all this stuff is. Now, they use two types of sensors. Well, they, they actually, they change them, but they use both of them, but they're still in the same places. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. The co-op and the uh, the other one, whatever the heck it was, uh, the U.S. Histor- Historical Climates, no, what is this? One? Oh, yes, the U.S. Uh, Historical Climatology Network. The stations that they have consist of two types of temperature measurement equipment given to the volunteer observers by the National Weather Service. When the network was originally established in 1890, Stevenson screen or cotton region shelters uh, enclosure, enclosures were used to house mercury-based glass thermometers. It was the best they could do at the time. This system was gradually phased out by newer maximum-minimum temperature systems housing Nimbus digital thermometers starting in the 1980s. What else started in the 1980s? Global warming, didn't it? Oh, yes, it did. I remember that for a fact. You see, they were just coming out of the acid rain, the ice age and the acid rain. They transitioned to acid rain. If you go outside and you're in acid rain, my God, it's going to kill you. It was killing whole ecosystems that are still there. So acid rain, right? Then they transition. When that didn't work, then they transitioned to we're going to make everything hot. That's what we're going to do. And then we're going to tax carbon. That's what we're going to do. So uh, in this, they actually show, okay, so these electronic uh, thermometers utilize cables from the outdoor sensor that connect the electronic readouts located in homes and offices, thereby limiting where the sensors could be placed. Makes sense, right? The inability of the National Weather Service personnel to bury the cable under sidewalks, driveways, and roads often resulted in the thermometers being placed closer to buildings, heat sinks, and heat sources compared to their original locations. Do you think that it's possible that those instruments might show a higher temperature when they're placed closer to buildings, heat sinks, and heat sources? You think it's entirely possible? I, I'm not sure. Well, these these uh, to go into further detail, these heat sinks and uh, brick walls, air conditioners, uh, transformers, asphalt, as you as you mentioned, airport runways, near metal objects. There's literally uh, like they're right next to an airport runway. It's it's right next to the lights on an airport runway. Yeah, uh, those uh, some of them are even um, uh, cordoned off behind uh, wrought iron fences. Um, I don't know if any of you have touched a wrought iron fence when it's uh, you know 100 degrees outside. You can't touch um, it. It'll yeah. burn your hand. Exactly. So what do you think that's going to do to their uh, MMTS? That's like you know right next to it. 
So in the 2009 report, uh, they surveyed and photographed more than 850 stations, providing an analysis of their temperature data. The peer-reviewed paper was published and distributed to thousands of lawmakers, scholars, and scientists. Some of the most important findings in the original reports are listed below. Many climate monitoring stations were located next to exhaust fans. That was the other thing. Yeah, exhaust fans of air conditioning units, the industrial air conditioning units at that. It wasn't even like the the residential ones. These are the industrial units, you know, the ones you can't even get near when you're not even facing the exhaust fan. Those? Yeah. Surrounded by asphalt parking lots and roads, located on blistering hot rooftops, or placed near sidewalks and buildings that absorb and radiate heat. When we went through and we looked at this, they have photos and, and graphs and everything else as to where these things are. And not only do they show where it is, I mean, you can visually see that that's going to change what that sensor is going to pick up. Not only did they do that, this report really breaks it down well. They also did a thermal image on these locations, on, on many of these locations as well, to give you an idea as to what it's really going to pick up. And the whole area is just, it looks like it's just blazing from the for the fires of hell itself, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when you when you have it right next to asphalt, uh, especially, or on a rooftop, and it's hot as hell here, yeah, that, that, that's going to be, even even if it's just on a parking lot, like a, a cement parking lot, you're, you're still going to have, try to go barefoot when it's 110 degrees outside onto a, to a, concrete driveway even let alone a parking lot you, you ain't gonna do it so no this is this is ridiculous it I is mean, ridiculous this, this the whole is, thing's falsified all of it yeah this, this data is well and on top of that the other the other side of this is those mmts they've not uh the the stations that they had out in like uh siberia and you know the colder regions of our planet they've removed those they no longer get data from those cold uh locations so it's going to skew the data anyway. You're not going to have those lower temperature averages bringing it down a bit. And it doesn't even matter. What's what's amazing, though, at the same time, they have these sensors in these locations, and yet we're not seeing even higher temperatures than we already are. So not only have they skewed the data in such a way, but they can't even when they're skewing the data, they can't even come up with the right conclusions. No, they can't. And this, if you're one of these these academics that does their their research and like they get government grants, if they don't toe the line, then they're not going to get a government grant. And the university is probably going to drum them out of the faculty. They're not going to be there. So you better toe the line. Well, it's irrefutable data, right? The scientists all agree unanimously, right? Isn't that what we're always told? All, all the scientists agree. Well, of course, they're all going to agree. They're going to agree because look at how they're getting all this data. If this is what they're basing their their decisions on, how in the world are you going to argue with that? But they don't know the backstory of it. They're just reporting on what information they get from the government monitoring stations. They're not looking at how these things are placed. You think academics that write papers and peer-reviewed papers on all this stuff and come out and endorse climate change and all these these yahoos at the UN and the EU and all the rest of them. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that the stations that they have for monitoring the temperatures in the EU and in the UK, I guarantee you they're placed in exactly the same manner. I'm I'm curious as, on, on this as well. Even if they did know this, would they speak out? That's the, no. the I'm, I'm curious because... No. And that, that's kind of my conclusion as well, because as you mentioned, grants. So in today's world, if you want a grant, especially when, when you're dealing with weather or meteorological 
uh, research. If you want to get a grant in that field, you're going to have to say climate change is real. It's an existential threat. We're all going to die because of climate change. So I'm I, I'm looking for a grant to do you know more research into this, see how we can solve it. So of course they're going to all agree because it's their money. That's their cash cow. That's how they're getting money. So they all have to agree. Yeah, climate change is real because we want the money to do our research. Uh, do they truly believe that climate change is real? I don't know. If if they're trying, if they're they're uh, going for the traditional, you know, where uh, observational science. Yeah, they they probably do believe in it because this is the data they're getting. They're getting, you know, from sensors that are uh, showing biased uh, readings. So it could be that they actually not, believe it. And they're not going out there. It, yeah, and that, as well as the, the earlier point that I was making, they're not going out there and looking to see where these weather station monitoring things are. They're not going out. Oh, gee, I'd like to. I got my data from that place. I'd like to go out and see it. They're not going to these places. They don't have time for that. They're too busy writing the next paper, figuring out how the government's going to use it to screw people over. I, I doubt they're even looking at the individual unit, the individual M, M, uh, MMTS. I, I doubt well, yeah. they're actually yeah. looking at and saying, OK, they're probably just taking the readout that that's put in a PDF form or a, a spreadsheet, Excel and sheet, showing they're all and they're just yeah. averaging everything. Yeah, and yeah. It, that's yeah. probably all they're doing. They're not even looking at individual ones. Yeah. 68 stations, and we're going to get into the placement of some of these things. It is extraordinary where they put some of these things. I mean, there's there's visuals and everything, but we're going to get into exactly where they put them. But overall, 68 stations were located at wastewater treatment plants where the process of wastewater digestion creates higher temperatures than in surrounding areas. In addition, the infrastructure of wastewater treatment plants is almost entirely asphalt and concrete. Have you ever seen those wastewater treatment facilities just outside of your town? That's not a lie. That's what those facilities are made of. Making these unrepresentative of the surrounding area and unsuitable for thermometer placement to measure long-term changes in temperature. Approximately 90% of the stations failed to meet even the National Weather Service's own sitting requirements, which stipulate that stations must be 30 meters or 100 feet or more away from an artificial or radiating reflecting heat source. Many stations often had missing, incomplete, or erroneous data, perhaps due to the volunteer-based network of observers who could not always record or report data based upon illness, weekday-only uh, reporting, and or vacation days. So you see, not only that, and I'm not advocating here for more government employees, because, my God, let's not give them any ideas here, but this is a volunteer network of people. So you're basing your data not only on faulty placement, which don't even meet the, the standards of your own guidelines from the National Weather Service, but you're also relying on volunteers to maintain it that don't get paid anything. They just, well, if I feel like it, I'll just, I'll show up. And if I don't, then well, I'm not. So that's what we're basing it on is just some some vegan, uh, no no offense to people, but that's usually the climate types you get. But we're, we're basically, okay, I'll, I'll do one better. Some Extinction Rebellion volunteer will show up whenever they feel like it. If they're not out at a protest trying to stop traffic or ruin your, uh, your, your days of buying a gallon of milk, they're going to maintain that network? I don't think so. The report found that major gaps in the data record were infilled with temperature data from nearby sites, compounding errors from other stations that were also non-compliant with station sitting requirements. 
The report observed that changes in the technology of temperature stations over time resulted in many being placed closer to buildings, as well as other heat sinks such as asphalt, concrete, and brick infrastructure. In some cases, official National Weather Service thermometers were moved to parking lots and next to external heat generating air conditioner units from previously cooler locations that were no longer available for thermometer placement. Prior to 2009, surface station, uh, the, uh, the surface stations project, uh, the weather stations that produce data for inclusion into the data set had never undergone network-wide quality assessment. The placement, maintenance, and calibration of each site is left up to the co-op manager at the local National Weather Service forecast offices. It's, it, see, it's in the hands of government. That's fine. Yeah, that, that's fine. Well, how many projects has government actually done successfully and well, efficiently? But here's my other question in this. This is on a topic that we're told we have to completely radically change our lives because this is an existential crisis. We're all going to die of this, right? So don't you think maybe we should have clear, precise data on this? Don't you think we should uh, put forth uh, a little extra effort? To make sure that our science is correct on this, when we're, we're going to change have, our whole civilization, uh, then yeah, you damn well better get it right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you have politicians that are trying to throw us back into the 1800s or earlier, Before um, that. horse pre-horse yeah. and buggy, because of the the, the nitrogen emissions. Well, that's true, because nitrogen, yeah, and methane. So uh, no, you, you need to you need to go out there and you need to go to each one of those uh, sensors and make sure they're uh, in proper placement. I bet you. In fact, one of them, uh, and talking about this, there was actually one I'm remembering now. It was at a hot springs, which was, was inside was, of like a yeah. bowl shape, like a valley. <laughs> so it, it had no the- wind. Yeah. And it, it, uh, next to a parking lot. Yeah. And a transformer. And a, yeah. And a, yeah. I was about to get into some of these uh, these stations. After these problems were exposed, NOAA and the National Weather Service began to close some of the worst defenders of these uh, these stations. The first of these was in Marysville, California, which was highlighted in the 2009 Surface Stations Report as the worst defender and served as the impetus for further national investigation. Uh, Marysville was the first of the How Not to Measure the Temperature series was published in 2007. Uh, Just over a year after the 2009 Surface Stations report was released, NOAA reported it closed its facility shortly after that. And the temperature temperature sensor was literally placed right next to the brick wall of the building, which was connected to an asphalt parking lot that had a cell phone tower that was 10 feet away from the temperature sensor, which that was on one side of it. On the other side of it, were two industrial air conditioning units with the exhaust fans blowing in that direction. Yeah, we're going to go down through some of these. The University of Arizona, they had theirs placed in, they literally placed it in the parking lot. It's literally in the parking lot on the asphalt. They fenced in an area on the asphalt parking lot, and that's where they put the sensor. Now, you would think if they were producing any peer-reviewed studies out of University of Arizona, you would think that the professors would just walk out in the parking lot. You'd think that they might ask, hey, wait a minute, is that the sensor I'm getting my information from? It might be a little bit of a problem. And some of these they took out. Uh, there were some down in Oklahoma. Uh, we were looking at the ones they had in, uh, in places like Perry, Oklahoma. They had the sensors right next to the buildings. You can see the thermal image right next to that, and it is just glowing right next to this uh, th- this concrete wall and this concrete building. Another one in Texas is right next to uh, uh, is right next to a satellite dish, which is on an asphalt parking lot again. 
And if you start looking at all these other places, such as like California, uh, places in Idaho and all, all these areas, uh, some of these are placed next to, to walls. Others are placed on top of a, uh, a sunlit rock wall that's next to a large asphalt parking lot. It's placed at the top of that wall. Do you have any idea how much heat is coming up off of that? Another place in Montana, it's right at a weather monitoring station is right next to a uh, right next to a brick wall, which is right next to an electric power generator. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got farms, various uh, farms that are out in. Uh, now this is an example of a good one. This is a farm that is a remote area out in Idaho. This is a pretty good example. This is literally out away from buildings. It's not near anything. That would be an example of a good placement, right? So it, in a couple of senses yeah, this, here, they, they got it right. This is a, this is where you would get an accurate reading, I think. Yeah, the, this one is uh, this one's pretty good location. Yeah. And the owner of the property probably gets a little kickback from the government for putting a monitoring station on his property. So if you go down to Florida, which Florida is already a boiling shower anyway, when you go down there anytime in the uh, the summer months, especially this one is placed near a building, which is uh, what, what would you say that is, Bruce? Right here is the, the monitor. What, what would you say that is? Maybe 10 feet away from that building, the concrete building, and maybe 10 feet, 15 at most, possibly. Uh, yeah, if we're assuming if we're assuming the monitor is on a we'll say about the size of a chain link fence post. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, yeah. 10, 15 feet. Yeah. Not only is it is it 10, 15 feet away from that. OK, yeah, maybe 10, 15 feet away from a concrete building. Maybe you could get an accurate reading. I doubt it, but maybe you can get an accurate uh, reading for that. Uh, if that doesn't work well, then you've got one, two, three, four, five industrial air conditioning units that are in between that sensor and the building. I don't really think you're going to get an accurate reading just based on that alone. And then, of course, you go down to a place in Oregon. Now, this one, you might think that, yeah, all right, maybe it's out in the middle of nowhere. You don't have to really worry about it. You might get an accurate reading on that one. No, it's right next to a ground mounted power transformer. Have you ever been around one of those things? And to give you an idea, when it snows, you notice the substations never have the, the electronic substations and, the, and the, the transformers that are ground mounted, they never have snow or ice on them because there's constant heat coming from them. As you can see on the thermal image of that, Bruce, that is white hot, is it not? That is white hot. Yes, that, that, is, that is very hot. Um, and another thing, that is what, say four feet away? Yeah. And it also sitting on a concrete slab in the burning sun. Yeah. But yeah, here's the uh, here's the hospital. This is the lava hot springs in Idaho. <laughs> this is a tourist attraction where the the temperature sensor was placed in a natural hole in the ground where hot water for bathing and swimming emanates from the natural depression in the ground. In addition, the sensor is next to a parking lot, a stone wall and a sidewalk, all of which are heat sinks. And it's, of course, it's right next to the power transformer you see there. The nearby electrical panel may generate heat, may also generate heat because the temperature sensor is below average ground level in the natural depression. It is also wind sheltered, which prevents atmospheric mixing and thus will not be representative of temperatures in the nearby landscape. And then, of course, there's the one you'd mentioned about the, uh, the iron rods, you know, the iron rod fence. It's right in the middle of that. Some of these other one in Ocala, Florida, that's this one has mold growing on it. Yeah, it's not you probably get an accurate reading out of that. Yeah, there's mold growing all over that. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then here's the airport runways. That's literally next to the light on the airport runway. And you can see the thermal image on these things. This is how they're getting their data. Now, mind you, this all started in the in the 1980s. They started placing all these things and building this network in the 1980s, which is exactly when they started this global warming bull. All of it. Of course, you're going to have increased temperatures with a network like this. 
It's going to show that. There's no getting around it when you start to see this. And so we're to now change everything. We're to change all of our civilization. We're to change all of our lives. And it's all our fault, remember. It's all our fault. It couldn't be the, the, the ridiculous fraud network that they built that they're basing all of this on. No, it couldn't be that. But instead, it's our fault because you drive a car and you eat meat and you farm and you grow food and uh, and you want to live. It's your fault. All of this is based on fraud. Every last bit of it. This confirms all of the fraud. It's the big climate change lie. And you know what? I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Nor do I. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I never was a part of the climate change agenda anyway. No. no. Um, I, I've always thought that was a bunch of BS. No. Well, now the, the this, this, is, this was, is double down material is what this is for yeah, us. This is this, this, exactly. this is double down material. Yes. But this, this is also reminiscent of everything that's happened over the last, you know, two to five years that we've seen. They, they're constantly lying to us, uh, skewing data. This is this is the same thing. This is lying to us, skewing data, gaslighting. Government's bad, okay? We're going to go ahead and call this one done. I think that's as good a place as any to leave it. For those of you who'd like to send us some feedback, please do so anytime by sending us an email at dynamicpodcast at protonmail.com. Also, do you like the podcast you're listening to? We do love having you as a listener, and we would ask you to pass this along to five friends. If you know someone you're trying to wake up and get to think on their own, we would appreciate it very much if you would send them our direction. Bruce, thank you for being here today. Thank you to all of the listeners. Everyone have a great evening.